Hey everyone, I'm Andy Petronic, and this is the Whole Life Challenge Podcast. It's the place we connect with extraordinary people, ones who think differently, who have risen to the top of their field, who have vast knowledge, experience, and insights to share, as well as incredible stories to tell. They are also the ones who have figured out a way to take their life's experience and turn it into something that truly makes a difference in the world for others. These are their stories. And here we are. Hey, gang, it's Andy Petronic. Welcome back. This is episode number 121 of the Whole Life Challenge podcast. I, I'm really super stoked today. Uh, my conversation finally gets to go up uh, with Chris Kyes of Outside Magazine. He's the editor in chief of Outside Magazine, guys. He's a really cool person. He does a lot of really cool stuff and he knows a lot of really cool people. Uh, I learned so much from Chris about the publishing business, the magazine publishing business, the, the process of writing stories, how they go from beginning to middle to end in, in terms of getting into a, a, a publication like outside. Um, uh, Chris, just a little bit more about Chris. He's been the editor of San, of uh, outside since 2006 he, be, he became only the fourth editor in Outside's 40-year history. Uh, first of all, I didn't know Outside Magazine had been, been around for 40 years. I started reading it back in the early 90s. Um, and to know that it's been around 40 years, he's, it's a man, it's a long time. Uh, Chris oversees all the content for Outside, which includes the monthly print publication, two annual editions of the Outside Buyer's Guide, and the magazine's website, OutsideOnline.com. Uh, during his tenure, Outside has remained dedicated to long-form literary journalism. It's earned eight National Magazine Award nominations and won an Ellie for General Excellence in 2013. Uh, Chris has a background, actually, in outdoor sports. He mountain bikes, he runs, he ski mountaineers, which we talk about in the podcast, and uh, he's just an all-around great guy. He's got a family, kids. I mean, he's the epitome of a person who thrives living in a small town like Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, and like I said before, learned so many really cool things about Chris, Outside Magazine, and the online publishing world. Things that I never even thought to ask before. or And didn't, definitely didn't know who to ask if I had a question. So um, you're going you're gonna to love it. You're going to love it, guys. Um, should I tell you more about the episode? How about I tell you a little bit more about the episode? Because I really didn't go in any bullets. We, we talk a lot about um, some of the great with some crazy things came came up in the podcast. We talk about the marathon monks of Mount Hiai. Uh, we talk about the North Face Endurance Challenge. We talk about dark retreats and Aaron Ralston and Lance Armstrong and we talk about uh, Chris's entry point into Outside Magazine as an intern. Uh, we talk about his very meandering path toward being a professional writer or a professional editor. It included fly fishing and working at a cattle ranch. Um, we talk about um, Kindle or books, writing versus hand or versus the computer or on your iPhone. 
or how to journal and the best ways to journal and how he assigns writers for stories and photographers for stories. Um, we talk about the article that he's most proud of or, or thinks of. Um, it's the article that, that comes to mind when he thinks of uh, some of the most quality work that he's done and worked on in the magazine. Um, trust me, this is an episode not to miss. You're going to love it. Um, yeah. So I'm not going to talk any more about that, but I'm going to tell you a couple other things. Um, number one, my fan of the week. So I, I select someone from the podcast ratings and reviews in iTunes to be the fan of the week. Guys, it helps me so much, helps the podcast so much. Get out there in the world, get all these guests out in the world. I want to bring you better and better quality guests. Not that some of the people that I have had have not been quality, but I want access to more people. And, and, uh, the more people I have noticing the show and listening to the show, the, 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 the better that gets. And the way we do that is by ratings and reviews. So if you can go to iTunes and leave a review, here's the best way to do it. Um, bitly bit dot ly forward slash wlc dash podcast that will if you use that link it will open up itunes on your computer and you can go to ratings and reviews and write a review and i would very 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 much appreciate it but the fan of the week this week is well gosh they wrote a review yesterday which is really cool uh waxalart chicago um Waxel Art says, uh, warning, listening to this podcast will change your life for the better. I can't say enough about how this podcast has opened my eyes to be a better person, both, both physically and mentally. I share all the life lessons with my friends and family. My family and I are looking forward to doing our first whole life challenge this January. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you, Wex, Waxel Art, <laughs> Waxel Art Chicago. Uh, I really appreciate you listening and I really appreciate you taking the time to write about it and tell other people. So, um, guys, please go out there and do that. I'd really, really appreciate it. And, uh, that's enough about that. Uh, this is the last episode of 2017. So, uh, I, it would not be complete if I didn't plug the whole life challenge. We're starting on January 20th. So, uh, if you've thought about registering, Now's a great time to do it. www.wholelifechallenge.com. They are the title sponsor of the, of the podcast and they're my only sponsor of the podcast right now. So, um, there you go. That's how we keep this podcast going is via the whole life challenge. So, so join us for the January challenge. It's the first one that's six weeks and it's a whole new, uh, it's going to be a whole new experience. So I'm really excited to start of that. Uh, don't forget that if you want the complete list of my notes from the, from the podcast, along with the links from the podcast, uh, go to the show notes. The show notes can be found at wholelifechallenge.com forward slash podcast. Um, and, uh, yeah, do that. So, uh, I'm not going to belabor this anymore. Um, I'm going to tell you, let's get on with the episode, huh? So, uh, get ready for the one and the only Chris Kai's the editor-in-chief of Outside Magazine. We're at the headquarters of Outside Magazine in Santa Fe, uh, New Mexico. And uh, just, uh, well, welcome. 
It's good. Good. Yeah, to, it's good to have met you. It's very. It's very surreal for me uh, to be here. And I, I was telling you this before, yeah. but I'll just share it with the, with the audience. Um, I've been, uh, you know, in in the adventure world for, you know, I don't know, not so much in the last 10, 12 years because I started CrossFit and doing other stuff. But you know, in the adventure racing world and mountaineering world and back, you know, backpacking and orienteering and you know. I mean, Outside Magazine was like my Bible. I yeah. mean, it was a thing we, m- me and my friends would bond over. We'd read the articles. We'd get the gear. Then we'd know, we'd use Outside Magazine to figure out uh, the sponsors we were going to go after for our team. You know, we'd go to Outdoor Retailer every year, and we'd be, you know, we'd, the, the Outside Magazine was the was literally the Bible. And uh, so it was the reason we're here, uh, you know, is when you guys reached out to us around about the whole life challenge, it was, it was just very surreal to me. Like, Why are they this is backwards. <laughs> this is totally backwards. <laughs> so, uh, it's really, really cool to be here. And, and I was telling you also the other day that, that this is pretty much what I expect. Like yeah. it looks like what I would expect in a, in outside magazine, the offices for outside magazine, the location, you know, there's skis and outdoor gear in everybody's office. Yeah. Everybody's everybody's doing the stuff that you exactly. guys write about. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that there, our location really is what allows us to, to remain that sort of authenticity of what we're writing about. You um, mean there are not a lot of big magazine publishers in Santa Fe? Yeah, we yeah, it's it's a, it's a little bit of a media backwater if you haven't gotten that sense yet. <laughs> um, and you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. Like, there's a lot of advantages in to be in New York. It's, um, it's well, especially har- if you're like the New Yorker. Yeah, if, if the New exactly. If your name is in the title, yes. By the way, that voice was yeah. not mine, and I didn't in- in- introduce Michael. Michael Stanwick is on the podcast with yeah. us today, and Michael's not usually. On the podcast, so welcome, Michael. Hello. Sorry, sorry I didn't. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, I just Mike, got, Michael and I are here in Santa Fe together. Stuck here and, in Santa Fe with Andy, and yeah. so rather stuck than, here. Yeah. Jesus, really? Yeah, rather than come on, we're having fun, aren't we? Yeah, we're having a great time. <laughs> we're actually having a really good time. And, and Andy and I don't spend a lot of time hanging out. We spent the whole weekend together, and strangely, like have had a really good time. Yeah, it's very most very, of, most very of our odd. waking like, hours really? have been together, and <laughs> we've like talked the whole, and the whole laughed. Challenge and, will go on, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like went to art together. It's not necessarily supposed together. to work that way, no. right? The, yeah. the people you work with are not necessarily supposed to be your friends. No, that's yeah, that's right. so. brilliant. I was like, wow. And I was like, Andy's a good guy. <laughs> I was like, maybe I'll invite him to my next party. He's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so yeah. sorry. Get back to no, the... not at all. So yeah, I mean, I think uh, yeah, there's like a, the, there's disadvantages in that it, it's harder to find a lot of journalists in yep. Santa Fe, so we recruit from from out side and are always bringing people in but once they get here um and if you're passionate about the magazine itself you know this is a great place to live because we have everything right out the back door how, how did you how was your route to getting here to be the editor of of outside magazine? i mean it's like a, to me it's a really big deal that yeah. you're like this is this is a thing it was funny because i think yesterday or two days ago in a conversation you're like i didn't know what i wanted to do after i left college so like how was the how was the route getting here it was pretty circuitous. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I went to college. I was pre-med. Wow. And kind of around my junior year or so, I decided uh, I, I, I had no idea why I was pre-med. I, I, I think I was just following a track, like, I guess I should be a lawyer or a this doctor. Was a, this was at Duke. This was at Duke University. And, um, and did you grow up on the and East Coast? I grew up uh, in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And so oh. one of the things, I was super homesick for the West when I got oh. out there. And my parents actually gave me a subscription to Outside my sophomore year in college. And the very first issue I got was 
Into the Wild was the cover story. Wow. John Krakauer's piece. And that just like, I I remember pulling that issue out of my mailbox and starting reading that article, walking all the way back to my dorm, finishing it, reading it again. I don't think email was, was, it was just being adopted around that time. So what year was that? This was like 94, 95. That, That was the issue that, was it a bus? That was the, on the front the cover? The bus was on the inside. On the outside cover was just like a landscape shot in Alaska. And I think, okay. it was, I think the cover line was something like Death of an Innocent or Death in the Wild or something like that. Huh. And yeah, anyway, th- that, that piece didn't, like, I didn't decide then and there, but it, it definitely planted a seed of like what great long form journalism and the kind of impact it could have. So after I graduated, um, I had switched majors, but had to, I got a biology degree. Had no interest in going into biology, but I was just so far down the track. Right. And, yeah, my mom was a career advisor at a college in Portland called Reed College. And I had gone and taught English in Asia and worked on a cattle ranch, worked as a fly fishing guide, still just had no idea. So you were kind of like the guy in Into the Wild. <laughs> yes, I was trying yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was, I, I was uh, tap, tapping into the Christopher McCandless route. Um were you, were you into writing? I mean, was writing a thing well, for you? Well, when I went, so I went and, and taught English in Taipei, Taiwan, uh-huh. um, made some money there, and it was right when, the, like, the late 90s Asian economic crisis happened. So uh-huh. I went to Indonesia right after that, with, planned on spending a couple months traveling there. The, the currency there had crashed, so my, I could literally live on 25 cents to 50 cents a day. Wow. With a hotel and the richest uh, man in Indonesia. I was, I was the richest man in Indonesia. And um, I think I ended up traveling there about nine months. And cost you $45. Cost me $45. So, God, that's amazing. So, anyway, I was keeping a journal that whole time and started to kind of, and just, you know, it wasn't journalism per se, but I was just recording my experiences. And um, was I, it like the beginnings of a blog kind of thing, or was you retyping it, it was or rewriting it by myself hand? at that time? But I was enjoying that process, mm-hmm. and um, I was reading a lot of uh, nonfiction and, and travel kind of writing at that time. And so it was something I was interested in. I wasn't necessarily directly pursuing it at that point, but it wasn't until I got back to the states, and my mom literally. <clears throat> sent me a flyer about an internship at Outside, and I was like, okay, that, that's something I could, I could see doing. L- let me ask you a mechanical question about when you were traveling and keeping a journal. Did you, did you have a, any sort of a, a daily routine that you followed? Did you, would you do an adventure or do something in your day and then every night come home and journal about it for an hour or two? Hours? Did, you, did you create some sort of ritual around it? Yeah, I actually was traveling. I met a guy from England who was much more rigorous about keeping his journal to the point where I almost felt guilty about about the fact that I wasn't as writing as much as him. So it became almost tapped into this competitive streak in me. And you were writing by hand. Yes. Not not typing. Yep. Yep. And this was, yeah, this was like, like, you know, late 90s, you know, there were internet cafes and that sort of thing, but blogging hadn't really started at that point. You didn't so have your MacBook Pro with you or MacBook your iPhone or anything or... like that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my parents just being so excited that there was something called a Hotmail account and that I was going to be able to correspond with them. Right, right. Um, but yeah, so there wasn't a real ritual, but it was, it was a daily thing that um, it would be you experience the day and then after, you know, we'd had dinner or something, you just sitting down for about an hour and, and writing about it. Would you, w- when you keep your journals like that, and I, I don't know if, 
well, whatever. I was about to judge my own question, so yeah. screw it. Um, uh, would you... Was it more reciting of what you did, like describing the events, or was it more like how you felt about things, or, or did it vary? Like, how did you... It, well, it would, it would never be the same thing. It was, but it, was, it would start with the recording of events, and then I would find myself, like, kind of realizing, like, something that I'd seen that day that had had, had more impact than I had kind of realized, and it would go into the in, details inside, of in, that. Yeah, not even inside, but just that... that um, that I had recorded the details in ways that I could write about and um, with much more fervor than I would something else. And, mm-hmm. I, and, that, and then I would realize, well, maybe that had affected me some way internally. Or, but it was the, I, what I loved about the process is that I never knew what I was going to really write about. There were really no rules about There's it. There's never any rules. And I think that's with any journal, like you start writing, and um, that, that, that's the, always the exercise that every writing class will tell you. Is yeah, because... If you're facing that blank piece of paper, you know, you could stare at it forever thinking, how am I going to start this? It's just fucking start, you know? Yeah, yeah right, I, I've, right. I've actually started a, a, a journaling practice as a part of a program that I'm in. And they, they encourage several different kinds of journaling. Um, and I've found that it, it results in me having to keep like four or five different journals. And one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm considering and like you, you, the way you're talking about it is like, okay, I understand what these different kinds of prompts they have for me are. Mm-hmm. Now can I just start writing and if something about one of those things comes up, incorporate it, but not not make it a rule about saying, first, I have to do this journal. Because I do find it very mechanical. Yes. And very much like I have to get this one done so I can start the next one and then start the next one. And, and, and it hasn't really touched into anything yet. And I yep. think the way that you're talking about it sounds much more organic and, and allowing the, the rules to just be ideas in your mind about what you could write about. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, I use that to, to, to this day. I mean, I write an editor's letter every month, and it's kind of the worst kind of slot for a writer because it's the exact same length every month, you know, within, it's, it's 300 to 375 words. And I've written, you know, it's been 10 years I've been the editor now, so... What is that? It's over 120 of them. And, um, and there's some months where I'm just like, oh. I just don't have anything to say. When, when do you decide what to write? Like how, how well, much that, in advance? That, when, when those, in Deadline, those times, you work with deadlines? Like? I have to have a deadline. <laughs> you can ask right. our managing editor. Well, you do have a deadline. I do have You're a deadline. Literally, but like, but yeah. I, I, I guess I get to push it at, at the ex- to the extreme limits. Not as extreme as some editors, because this is like notorious throughout the industry. Is nobody likes to write these. I, I like to write them once I've, I've figured out the way in. But it's always that blank sheet of paper, and I have to go through the contents of the magazine and look, okay, what is it I want to write about? And I'll see two or three subjects, and I'll just start on one of them. And invariably, once I write that first sentence, it's my way in. But So it's something that's tied in topically to what, what's in the magazine that yeah, month. Yeah, almost, almost um, every time. Sometimes I'll... I'll be riffing off um, something in the news, but you know we're a monthly, so it's it's just really hard to say. Like I could be writing writing about something that happens today, and it's way old by the time. Right, it by the time there. it comes out, it's not even relevant. Or yeah. the, the wind has changed. Especially the news cycle now. Nowadays, yeah, right. So, yeah. yeah. What's the latest you've ever waited to write that? And like, or do you, do you have someone that? Do you have or two questions? Do you have someone that edits you? And then secondly, what's the latest you've ever waited to? Um, get yeah, thing? I have. I don't necessarily have the. The editor's letter has become, it's so much in my voice, and I can write it really quickly now once I get that start. I don't really have an editor on that, but if I'm ever writing like a feature story or anything like that, I always have an editor here. Yep, yep. Um, 
editors are invaluable and always will see something that you didn't see and um and then my my once anything is ever written for the magazine whether it's myself or anyone else you have an editor and then you go into page proofs and multiple people on staff are reading it and critiquing it and for not for your letter but for a regular and, and my letter oh yep. really yep a, a oh, lot wow. of people will read that as well and um and give me notes and i can decide whether to take them or not yeah do you use um do you use what do you use word do you use google documents i use google do you, docs really yeah huh there's um we also have a publishing platform that I won't name because I'll get in trouble, but I, I, I dislike very much. Huh. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. I've tried so many different platforms for journaling. You know, it's I'll, I'll need to do it by hand or I'll use I, I use Evernote for a lot of things. So I'll try and yep. keep a daily journal in there. I found online software that allows you to sort of like block out everything else on your computer mm -hmm. and, and then journal in there. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I, I, I find that all this, it, it requires some other step then yes. to integrate it into your into something else, and so I, uh, I always end up falling back to some of the basics, like like Microsoft Word or Google Docs, somewhere where it can just be stored sequentially, and you know. Well, Google Docs is great because we'll have you know I have editors all over the country or writers yeah. all over the country, and we can both be in the same document at the same time, yeah, and writing notes to each other, etc. So it's just very seamless. Whereas Microsoft Word is just very back and forth. I agree. I, yeah. I, I, Word drives me crazy. I love Google Docs. My, my, our, 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 uh, it's funny. I'm going to make sure Becca listens to this because uh, if outside can use Google Docs, maybe we should use Google Docs, Becca. <laughs> yeah, Becca will. She, she will, likes Microsoft even, Word. Even if I write something in Google Docs, she'll, she'll download it in Microsoft Word. Then she likes to track the changes and that kind of stuff, and then she'll do things, and then she'll send you the Word document. Yeah. So at that point, you're sort of you're in the flow of using using Word to edit with There's her. There's definitely like a passive aggressive. Uh method of using those two things because there's a lot of writers that prefer that and you'll send it to them to them in a google doc and you'll get it back in word yeah oh god i hate that. <laughs> well so you know really, right. but when it comes to like journaling i like I, part of the reason i don't like using things like google docs is it feels so not romantic yeah you know it feels yeah. like it's like i like this idea of like having a journal and having it be a part of you and like logging into google to do that, it kind of cuts that thread. Yeah, I don't know if I could do journal writing. I like to have paper. I'm I'm pretty obsessive about notebooks too. Oh, really? I love. Recently, notebooks. I got this new. There was this new tablet coming out. It was called the Remarkable Tablet, and it was this. And it was a. Uh, it was it was it was writing on the screen, but the 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 feel of the pen and the screen. It's very much like paper. Um, Is it because okay? So because I have this note notebook obsession. Yeah. You know everything that I look at online is they, they track me. So these people have it's found the me. Most, yeah, I get ad for me it too. Everywhere. In Instagram, all over. It's Facebook, the most over, like right. it's the most like paper. Yeah. Because I used to do it in Evernote with with a with a with a Bluetooth pen. Writing on glass just was it just wasn't the same experience. It's not exactly like paper, and I, I suspect that someday someone will do a much better job. I've seen something else for artists that allows you to write on paper mm -hmm. and it transfers the or, or draw on paper and it transfers yep. the picture. I don't know if it works the same for for journaling. But, um, you know, I, I, I've, I've used it now. It's brand new, and I wouldn't get it now. It's full of glitches. I mean, I've, like, I've, I've looked at what they've uh, experienced online with customer service. It, it's going to take some time like anything else. I was, I, it was very, one of the very few things I early adopted. Yeah. Like I bought it before it was out because it was half price to buy right, it early. Right. Um, and I haven't really been thrilled with it, and I've actually gone back to like using Evernote, and I'll probably go back to a paper notebook. So I wouldn't say invest in it. It's it's going to take some time. Their nibs for their pen, the pen, they wear out. You have to keep replacing them, but they actually wear out pretty quickly. Yeah, they send you about a dozen. 
Um, and I'm like, what do I do when I run out of this? You sharpen your pencil. Come on. It's not, not a pencil. <laughs> but it's, sharpen it, the nib. It's it's cool, but it's clunky. The the file system is clunky. It's got that kind. It's it it kind of loads like a Kindle did five years ago. Uh-huh. So it's like slow and weird and ghosts and. Okay, I'm definitely not getting one. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Rec- I wouldn't recommend work. it yet. Yeah. Um, and uh, but Gosh, it, it, they make it look so remarkable. They do. Why? They why? Do. I wonder why. Well, people <laughs> and, and people make people are like it's remarkable how bad their customer service is. But I think I think it's a it's a cool device. You know, everyone's everyone's trying to do something like that. I've been so into finding a ta- like an on screen tablet for like ten or fifteen years. I've wanted that to yeah, be the thing. Yeah. I've wanted to have a computer, but also be able to write by hand. Yeah, me too. Actually, and, and it's not happened quite yet. I tried it a lot when when iPads came out and tried to find the right pen and the right tablet, and it just I, I remember going to a, I went to a barefoot running seminar actually a five day seminar and I took I tried taking all my notes on my iPad with this thing on the glass and it I, as I really made full effort to this is going to work and I and I'm going to make this happen and it God it was hard yeah. God it was yeah. hard and I and I just I, the, I the thing they can't replicate is like is flipping pages yeah in that and for some reason like if I want to go back to my notes I can quickly flip through pages but man this is like load 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 yep. you know so it's there's 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 always going to be a discontinuity between an actual handwritten thing and anything that they do digitally absolutely yeah so you're, yeah I well mean, and that's the thing that this our whole industry is, is wrestling with but yeah right. um you know i'm certainly not going to say that magazines are the future but that's why i say that they'll they'll never go away in the same way that books will never go away and right we and were just, seeing that in books i mean books are yeah having this resurgence now at a time when people thought everybody would be converted to, to a Kindle. Yeah. We were just talking about the kind of, there are books that I want to hold and there are books that I don't care if I hold or not. It's, if it's like a, just an information book, I'm happy to get it on the Kindle and get the information. But if it's a book that really means something, I want to hold it in my hand. Yeah, and then I want to see it on my bookshelf. Exactly. Yeah. And I also I miss the ability to thumb and know how far I am based on how thick my the book is and on my left hand versus my right hand. Yeah. And I like to be able to flip to the back and not worry that it won't remember where my place was in the book. I'm, 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 I'm always paranoid to jump to a later point in the book because I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's going to sing. It's going to ask me, do you want to sing to the latest place read? And I'm going to accidentally <laughs> click yes, and I'm going to completely lose my place in the book. And so there's some there's some challenges. Yeah, I think we're online you know, reading. We're I don't think anybody would argue that, you know, technology has moved so much faster than our brain has. We're still very tactile, yeah. you know, v- visual, tactile. I mean, so much of our experience is through our senses and ev- having everything be digital, it's like you really rob your brain of something really intrinsic to the experience. And it's not just reading, because even reading has only been around for 500 years, really, for most of us. But just the idea of interacting with a physical object is so different for us than a well, digital Well, and they, there are a lot of studies are showing, the too, that in terms of the, your learning quality and retention is better on the printed paper than it is digitally. Well, and the really mm-hmm. interesting thing also now is, is the audio stuff, mm-hmm. like audio books, because I've heard a lot about how how audio is actually really good yeah. for retention. If you consider that storytelling is so sure. much older than the written page, that it completely makes sense. But like I look at your shelf and I see this, you know, there's the magazines on the shelf. Even that, I tried to collect magazines for a long time. I was I'm big into food. Mm-hmm. So food magazines. Because it's like you never get to go back to something you saw on the internet. It's like it, just, it didn't exist indexed anywhere. It's just kind of floating out there right, in space right. versus like having that issue. And pulling it yeah, off the it's shelf, it's, it's it's totally different. And I get it. Like I don't have that much space anymore to save every magazine that I ever got or every book that I that I ever read. 
Yeah, I, the other thing where I, place I see it is um, like to-do lists. I've probably tried every single you and me both. online <laughs> digital version of it, and yep. I always go back to like, I just want my really nice pen and my really nice notebook and my system and that tactile approach to it, and it's so much, it's so much more effective for me. I've used, uh, I, I, there's a new one that I've been using, well, we're using Trello now in the company, which I'm, mm-hmm. I'm adopt, I've adopted for my own personal stuff be- simply because I want to be well-versed in it for, for company stuff. Yep. And it's actually great for sharing stuff and projects. Yeah, we use and, that as well. Um, but I've, I found a writing one that's like Evernote, but it has that feel. Like it's not opening a Google Doc. It's called Bear. Hmm. And um, so I've been using that sometimes. Like if on a Sunday rolls up, and I don't want to go to Trello because Trello to me associates like getting things done, and I don't really want to feel like I have to get things done, but yeah. I want to make a list. And so I'll open up Bear and it'll let, let me put in checklists and, you know, put in things. And I, I, really, I, I, and I enjoy the experience. I, yeah. The feeling of when it's open, even writing on it, I enjoy. So um, Yeah, I definitely don't manage my life and my work the same because I've tried to use Trello for my life. Yeah. And it just, it just feels like a very regimented, yeah. productivity-based way to organize my life. It's like, spend time with my girlfriend. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> don't show her that one. <laughs> <laughs> she would be glad to know that I was making an yeah, effort, yeah. like that it was important enough to me to like reshape my brain around it. But it's not, it's not, that's not really one of our problems. But, but just in general, like the, the things in your life – aren't the same thing as the things in your work necessarily. Right. I mean, they can yeah. be, but there's a different quality to them. Yeah. Chris, when did you decide, so going back to your story, and you, you became an intern at, at Outside, um, when did you realize you actually had a knack for writing? That, Wait, that, I, I want to ask you something about that really quickly, because it seems like there's this weird synchronicity that Outside Magazine has in your life. Mm-hmm. You left for college, mm-hmm. and to keep you connected to that outside life, your mom sent you Outside Magazine. Right. And then you went on your adventures, you finished college, you went to Asia, you did a bunch of traveling around, and the, the moment you finished and came back, another thing from Outside Magazine appeared on your doorstep right. it's from true. your mom it's true. that said, hey, they're doing this, and you took advantage of that. How, how does that, I mean, what does that feel like? Does it feel like a sense of sort of destiny for you? Yeah, a little bit. I don't believe so much in that, but I think I was I was definitely tapping into something I appreciated about the magazine and that it was this combination of this passion I have for adventure and this passion I have for writing. And there's no other, at least in the magazine world, outlet where I could sort of fuse those two. There are a lot of magazines that I would love to work for and certainly earlier in my career I would have enjoyed. But, um, but I always knew that this is the kind of the place that I, I would want to end up. Um, and so, yeah, so I, the first time I applied for the internship, I had zero journalism experience and this was a, this was a paid internship. So it was a little more serious and I didn't hear a word back the first time. Um, and then I, I volunteered at a couple. Did you have to submit sample writing samples and stuff? I think you had to submit, uh, like three or four story ideas, maybe a critique of an issue of the magazine and, um, and like a cover letter and various things so oh and writing clips so i didn't have any writing clips except for my journals what's a, what's a writing clip like a, a writing like clip a, is a... literally like an example of something you've published got it um so yeah i think it was the third time that i applied that i i i got it and i was just thrilled and i literally still had no idea how magazines worked or by the time you applied a third time had you started thinking well maybe i should get something published or maybe I should did yes. you do any prep work for the that, that's why I, I finally got on the radar because I was volunteering for 
I should say I was interning, but those were volunteer internships uh, at a couple of local publications in Portland. So I got some clips. I got some experience. I did some reporting. Um, I had a little bit more to bring to the table at that point. Um, But I still didn't, you know, in terms of a national magazine, I had no idea what I was getting into. I just had this kind of notion. You said that, like, outside looked exactly what you thought it would be. I had just no idea. And you know, it's like when you go to, you're going to somebody's house or something, you have this vision in your head yep. and then you see it and you can't remember what it was that you had before, yep. but yep. That, that, that's what it was like for me. I just remember it being very different. I can't remember what it was that I was picturing. Huh. Um, but the work they threw you into in an internship was really great. It was fact checking. So I would, I would read these long feature stories and then I would essentially have to re-report them, call all the sources, make sure the quotes were correct, all the details and the stories were correct so i kind of learned how you put together a story I would did also, you have to decide what the relevant facts were or yeah you kind of go through and say like with your highlighter and figure out everything that is of a factual nature and if it is of a factual nature then you have to check it with hmm. some other source um and so just the rigor of that and then you would also watch these features go through multiple drafts and I was so you kind of by osmosis would see, okay, here's how a story came in, here's how an editor reacted to it, and here's how we ended up publishing it. And sometimes there was a vast difference between the first draft and where, where it came through. And what I didn't realize, sort of realize at the time, but that was um, I was learning how to edit by just watching that process. Do you find that when you read other magazines these days, there's a, there's a level of fact checking that's not as important, either in certain arms of the publishing industry or, or, or less important than it used to be? Because it I feels to me like a lot of people sort of play fast and loose now, you know, from magazines up to the president. It's like facts aren't, aren't as important as a feeling. Well, there's a couple things happening there. Okay, so first off, there's, there's a difference between what newspapers do and what magazines do historically. So a newspaper, your reporters are essentially your fact checkers. They're incredibly rigorous if they're following all the, the, the protocols of good reporting. Um, you know, multiple sources on, on facts, you know. Um, they generally, and because they're producing so much content on a daily, hourly basis, that can't all be fact-checked if you want to be timely with that right, stuff. Right. But if they're following rigorously, they're not gonna, they're, they shouldn't get much wrong. Um, in magazines, which is a much slower process, there still is, um, at most national magazines, a pretty rigorous fact-checking process going on. What's interesting, though, is the rise of digital publishing, and this is a, something that we're struggling with here, but any magazine, any newspaper that is publishing now hundreds of stories a week or at even a day, you can't fact check all of that. And, right. um, and that's where stuff slips through. And are you guys, so that's, that's, that's actually a question I, I, I often have about publications like Outside. You have your, your monthly magazine, which is a discrete amount of content, but then there's all this time between when the magazines come out and all this digital airspace, so to speak, to fill. Are you guys actually you're actually producing a continuous additional content to post on your website? Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd say it's probably like nowadays. Okay, so when I first got here, we had a single um, online editor. And basically their job was to just transfer everything from the magazine onto the, the website. We now have, I think, between 15 and 20 on the digital staff, and they're cranking out anywhere from 30 to 50 articles a week. And how do you guys treat that content differently from, like, what shows up in the magazine? 
Um, well, it's so with the magazine, primarily, we, you know, we build it, we build an issue around our feature stories. That's always been our bread and butter. That's what readers respond to the most. So that's the core of it. But we are starting to publish features on the website as well. You publish them after the issue comes out, obviously. Yeah, do you do yeah, teasers for the, for the feature stories? We, actually, right now we, we print right around the time or we publish online right around the time that the story will come out in the print magazine and mm -hmm. sometimes if there's something with breaking news in it we'll put it up before readers even get the printed issue right um but the the in terms of the point of different differentiation we're just making mostly a decision of what we want in the print magazine has to be relevant when you get the print magazine so there's a lot more breaking news reaction stories to what's happening in the world online then there will be in print because, as we were talking about before, this, the news cycle is so quick. Right. But if something happens with, say, like public lands debate right now, or you know, the shrinking of a national monument, you know, we're not going to wait till for print in two months to react. So to there's that. a real advantage to also to having absolutely, the yeah, right. yeah, yeah. What? Um, take me through the process of uh, of uh, the the origin, the beginnings of a story through to it gets published in the magazine, not the digital side, but the print side. Yeah. What, what, what's so that process? It's a what's feature the length? story. So let's say we have, um, there are very few magazines that have on staff writers. So we use a, a kind of a stable of freelance writers all, all, over the, all over the world, really, but mostly in the U.S. We have a feature story um, meeting once a week. So all of those writers work with one editor here at the magazine they send their ideas once a week wow. to that editor that editor brings the best ideas to this meeting and then as a group kind of all the senior editorial staff will go through all the pitches from that week and these freelancers they're just all over the world doing their thing looking you know kind of looking for these stories yep and they just send them send an email in once a week and say hey i got this idea i mean not not necessarily they won't do that once a week just only when they when have, they have good, something uh, something good and right. they're also working with other publications yep um, some of them will have on contract or some of them with more exclusivity. But, yeah, a lot of them are working with multiple publications. Um, so a lot of times before that pitch gets to the meeting, the editor and that writer will have a back and forth. So if right. I'm your editor and you send me an idea, I'll be like, hey, I think this has a lot of potential. I'd like you to look into X, Y, and Z mm -hmm. and then send it back to me. So I'll kind of shape it with you first. Then I'll bring it to the meeting. Right. And we'll talk about it as a group. And... Ultimately, it's my call what gets what what we assign. But I I definitely what I'm looking for in that meeting, and, and a lot of the editors have learned this is enthusiasm about an idea. Because I'll right. often come in and be like, mm, I'm not so so keen on this. But a couple of enthusiasm editors, enthusiasm from the from who from the other editors in the room. Oh God! So I'll, we'll get to let's say uh, you know, guys, what do you guys think of Andy's story idea here? And if there's kind of a a ho hum that reflects, you know, the kind of energy I'm bringing into the meeting with it, then I'm like, all right, let's move on. Because right. it even might, might be a good story, but if nobody's that interested in it, it's hard that, to that get That is off the really ground. telling for me. Right. Yeah. And the same time, I might come in and say, like, oh, I'm not really interested in the Andy story, but you two t say, you know, no, Chris, you're wrong about this, and this is a great idea, and we, we need to do this for this X, Y, and Z reasons, and somebody else chimes in. That will tell to me, like, I, I'm looking for, the, the, for a story to cause some kind of reaction. Right. Even if it's... Um, in opposition to what I think about it, that's sure, a good right. sign. That's right. a good sign. So but that's you want what we're your stuff to for. generate conversation. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. So, um, and there's a lot of stories that are good 
topics, but they don't generate a conversation. Exactly. So that happens in the meeting. Yeah. And that's every week. That's every week. So, you know, sometimes we won't assign anything out of that week. Sometimes we'll assign four stories that week. Mm -hmm. Um, But then what we... The the editor basically has the green light. We'll decide on a kind of length and fee. He'll go back to the the writer, or she'll go back to the writer and say, "Yep, we're on." Here's is this is this Mary, the w- woman we had lunch with last week? Last Mary uh, is one ago? of those editors. Yeah, but okay. we probably have, let's say, five assigning editors oh, wow. for feature stories. Okay, and they do multiple things at the magazine and and online, but um, that's one of their duties. So they'll they'll talk to the writer, and then the writer will set up their reporting, and sometimes. It could be six months till we get a draft. Because the writer may not have, like, if it's if it's involving an adventure, doing something, like climbing, climbing Everest or, yeah. you know, like going to Machu Picchu or whatever it is, they haven't done it necessarily right. yet. Right, yeah. So it's a really, it's a slow cooking process. Yeah. You know, sometimes we'll get a draft in a month because it's timely. But, yeah, for the most part, like, that, that kickstarts all this reporting that has to be done. Do you set a deadline at that meeting and decide, okay, this is going to be for November of 2018, and you tell the writer whatever adventure you're going to do has to be done so that you can write it. Do you do, you, do, you do that process then? It's a then? real mix. Sometimes a story is like, this story will be ready when it's ready. Um, hmm. And it doesn't really matter. It's evergreen. It's going to be interesting no matter when it comes out. Like the end of the wild story. Like the end of the wild story. Right. Um, other stories, yeah, we'll say like, hey, we, we've got to have this in for our March issue. So that means this deadline. Um, right. But for the most part then, in any given month, we're dealing with an inventory that has like ten stories that I could pluck out of I, I that are d- that are done, that are, or, or they're or, or I know are going to be ready for an issue, and then and then I look at okay, well, how do these stories interact with each other? You know, I want them there to be this nice mix. And this is how far in advance of the issue coming out. So you're we're in a, we're talking about you're in a month. Like let's say it's March, I guess, or mm-hmm. whatever. What issue are you? Well, I said March about. actually because we're actually right now working on our March issue. Got it. So we're in we're in December, which comes out in February. <laughs> like it's ready, yeah. like a shell game, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's the newsstands. <laughs> Digital though comes out in January. <laughs> okay, so, so we're in. He could not last here very long. No, I would be. I'd be lost. I can't remember people's names for God's sakes. I'd be lost. So okay, so December. The we're in December. You're working on. The March issue, mm-hmm. which comes out February, beginning of February? Yeah, like let's say the first week of February. First week of February. Uh, the articles that you're thinking about, well, is there a theme of the of the issue already for March? Do you already know what that is? Yes, and did, yeah. And that, that's did you pick been that up for a while. Oh, it yeah. has? Yeah. Okay. Now, now, not every issue has a theme, but sometimes we'll do a special issue theme. So, this, for, for example, this one is a theme of work. And we're looking at kind of all the incredible ways that um, work and career has evolved in the last 10 years. So we have a piece about um, these services now that are basically cater to the gig economy where people aren't aren't fixed to an office or anything and they Mm want to travel the world. And they basically provide all the infrastructure so you can work and travel the world at the same time. Wow. Um, We have... A piece about um, sexual harassment in the guiding world, or how to, how things have, um, you know, in light of all the scandals that are going on, we wanted to look at how this is affecting our world, and that's something that we really try to do 
because um, it gets back to sort of how we make assignments. We really try to look at what's the national conversation right now. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of there that's going on in politics that you'd say, like, that is not an outside story. But right. we feel like it's our job to say, like, okay, what, what is everybody talking about and how do we make this an outside story that's appropriate for our readership and relevant to our readership and then is feeding back into this national conversation? So if it's, you know, everybody's talking about head injuries in football, we're saying like, OK, well, let's look at head injuries and in some of the sports that we cover. Right. Find an incredible story there. Um, or it's, you know, an example this year is the, you know, there's there's been just what has transformed travel more than anything else. It's Airbnb. So right. we wanted to look at how Airbnb, Airbnb is, is kind of changing the economy of these mountain towns that we're always yeah. putting up on a pedestal. Right. And right. it's kind of fascinating. It's like it's it's become where uh, people can't rent a place in these t these towns that were once dream towns for to live in live in a mountain town so that's the kind of thing we're looking for but yeah to get back to your question about the timing like it's this this big soup in my mind of like i've got a, a pile of stories that are churning over here i'm kind of getting updates on when which ones are going to be ready and then we start start placing them in issues so have you um knowing your theme is work let's just use this as a, it's a it's something concrete for my mind to yeah. kind of fix around. So have you, so you've got these stories that have been in the works that you're not sure they're kind of percolating around and floating around. Have you also made assignments specifically for that theme? Yeah. Like, 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 did you decide those like a couple months ago because of the, you so when we, we, we'll come up with a, a full calendar, um, for 12 months and we'll say, let's say like three or four of those will be a themed issue. So like last year we did um, the meaning of life. We did a women's issue. We did a survival issue. So we know those are on the calendar. So for next year, one of the themed issues is this work issue. First thing we do is we look at that inventory of everything we've assigned and say, what retroactively of these stories that we've already assigned might actually work for right, this? And right. sexual harassment was, was one, that, um, one that did. And then we'll kind of have two or three spots that are filled up, and then we'll say, okay, well, let's now look for stories specifically on that theme. Mm -hmm. How much, uh, as, a, as an editor, do you ever sometimes look and go, what would be my, f who, who do I want to interact with? Like, what would be my fantasy? Who are the, who are the people in the, in the outside world that I would actually really get a thrill of working with mm -hmm. and sort of shape, shape some of the, the stories you do around getting to, like, meet your heroes yeah, not so much no? that. I mean, my heroes are writers. Okay, <laughs> so fair enough. It's who are the writers that I would want to okay. work with, or who is who is the writer that I would want to read a story about this subject from. Hmm. And that's why I say to the staff, so, like, we get all these ideas from writers. The thing is, I could get an incredible idea from you or you, Michael, and maybe I'm not so wild about your writing, <laughs> Unfortunately, then I have to decide, like, do I want this story? Because you've sent the story idea. I, I can't then just take your idea and assign it to another writer. Is that like an ethical thing? Or yeah, it's an ethical a, thing. It's an un, unwritten rule. In exactly. The, yeah. Because okay. that guy might be able, I might be able to take it to another magazine, and they're like, yeah, write that for us. Exactly. Yeah. So, they like my writing. <laughs> <laughs> they like me. Well, keep working on it, Michael. You might make it here someday. <laughs> but that's why I say, like to the staff all the time like the best ideas we can come up with are the ones that we come up with ourselves and right. then we can assign to whoever we want but th th yeah th that that answers your question like uh, you know there are writers that 
won't write for out. They're not sitting there at home waiting for outside to give them, you know, or, or, or pining away for a, an assignment for outside. Um, but if we can entice them with the right idea, we'll, you know, we'll get something incredible. Cool. And then, okay, so uh, so you've 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 assigned some stories that you've come up with for that episode mm -hmm. for that uh, issue, and you've got some stories you've identified as these long term projects. When do you start then? the process of making those stories ready for the, for the issue? Like, um, well, later than we should, if you ask our managing editor, of course, but essentially as soon as a story draft comes into an editor, they, they should be reacting to it and getting back to that writer. Um, you know, one of the hardest things for a writer out there. So, you know, we know they're freelance, they're out on their own, they're pining and you know just sweating over these drafts, and then they they'll send them in, and the writer will be busy with something else, and they won't hear from them for you know three weeks, and so the poor freelance writer will be just like, oh my god, how bad was it? <laughs> they're tearing it apart. They're just tearing their hair out. Yep. And editor will just get back to them. Hey, it was great. No problems. Well, Becca way. edits my writing, yeah. and and uh, I go through exactly the same thing. Like, God, I sent it last week. Is, yeah. is it? You know, and I, I know what she's. You know, I'm, I'm her kind of de facto boss. I know what she's doing, but I still, yeah. as a writer, every, I still have the every same. Every writer on the planet goes through like, that. Yeah. And then she sends it back to me, and th then I have the opposite thing. Then I procrastinate. I don't don't really want to read what she sent me because yeah. uh, it's usually, uh, I don't know how bad it is, but it's certainly full of like, <laughs> yeah, this could be a lot better. And this could, and then I got it. Oh, fuck. I thought it was done. Yeah. I thought yeah. this was like. Jesus, really? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's a whole other topic. No, so I mean, I think um, so. Ideally, you're you're reacting quickly to your, right. to your writer. It goes back to them sometimes for multiple revisions, and then the editor will do kind of a final edit on the piece and say, I "I've taken this as far as I can go." Do they know a word count at that point? Like how long? Yeah, we ha we shoot for a rough word count, but we try to let the stories dictate their length rather right. than the length dictate the story. Yep. Um, and then that, that story will go to what's called a top editor here. It'll be kind of another set of eyes. They'll come to it fresh. Sometimes that'll, that'll kickstart a whole other round of revising. Other right. times it's just a little few tweaks in here and there. And then it'll go to a layout, and then we're starting production on it. So when do you – what about photo photography? Like how – when do you – because some, some of your writers, I'm sure, are photojournalists. Well, um, some of them like to think they are. <laughs> <laughs> you want to name some names? Andy <laughs> no, no. I'm well, not a journalist I, or a I'm speaking well, up for our creative director here. I use, I use my iPhone for photos. What's wrong with that? I know. Andy will be like, I got a bunch of photos to go with this as well. <laughs> yeah, pretty that? much no. every writer thinks that their, their, their stuff, their photographs should be published alongside with their words. Right. But no, uh, when assignment is, is made to a writer, that's when we're also um, – giving all the information to our art department and mm -hmm. they're assigning a photographer either if it's on a trip they'll accompany them or maybe they'll come back behind them after the reporting is done and, and do a separate does a, does a writer ever have a photographer that they like working with and say hey I'd like to like this guy to do uh, it very often and very often that's in conflict with our creative director right. and you can imagine if it's sort of like if the creative director came to me and said like hey i've got this photographer and they want to work with this writer and i'm going to be like mm, eh, i'm sure <laughs> right. they're great friends but that's right. not who i want to work with right and so yeah that comes up all the time and we just say it's up to our 
our creative director to decide who's who's going to shoot this. Right. I have a right. question for you about some of the big stories because I know that uh, Into the Wild was sort of a, a seminal piece for you as far as uh, your relationship with Outside Magazine. Mm-hmm. It was the first one that that you saw when you got Outside Magazine. As a, after you came on board as, as editor, do you have any pieces that you've been responsible for producing yourself that have ha- that you are really really proud of that really stand out to you? Yeah, um, the one that comes to mind immediately is. Um, <clears throat> A piece about uh, the Yarnell Hill fire, where 19 wildfire uh, fighters died in, I guess it was now 2012. Arizona. Yeah. It was in Arizona. Arizona, right? yeah. yeah. And um, we had a guy on staff, his name's Kyle Dickman, and he had been a hotshot, uh, not hotshot as in the, for yeah. the, the, the actual uh, fire term. He was a hotshot uh, firefighter in... Uh, a couple years after college, so a couple summers um, in California, and he'd been. And those are the guys who get dropped into the middle of the fire. Exactly, yeah, they're the kind of first line of defense, and so he knew this world really well. And so he had pitched a, about eight months before the Yarnell Hill tragedy. He said, "I want to write about hotshot firefighters, and I want to embed with my former wow. uh, unit, essentially." And we thought, "Okay, this is great." And he was—he was a pretty young writer at that time, didn't have a lot of experience, but we thought we'd take a risk on it. And he was on staff, so he—he kind of dropped in three or four times. Had just published this great story, writing about uh, the lives of these guys, and about two weeks later, the Yarnell Hill tragedy happened, and he wanted to write about it. I had another really really great writer who was interested in it as well um but we thought because of kyle's experience and um that that would be a way into this world that that people would talk to him Mm -hmm. so he came back with just an incredible story unbelievably tragic he and i were on the phone multiple times crying through the process just and um, that story was uh, nominated for a National Magazine Award and just to this day just generates a lot of uh, traffic on the website because I think he just tapped into such a emo- the emotional core of what happened there. And, and is that what, what really makes it special for you, that it actually be- it was a very true story and it touched you deeply? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, that what we did what we did in that process is sort of like, the ideal in terms of, you know, until pretty recently, I think my parents thought that editing was essentially copy editing. I was looking for spelling mistakes and punctuation, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and what they, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with a 10,000 word draft, there are so many things that happen along the way in terms of restructuring the whole um, narrative and um, taking large pieces out, adding new pieces, deciding what goes where. It's just a huge jigsaw puzzle piece. Mm-hmm. And if you're working with great material and a great writer who's responding to you, it's it's this, this unbelievable um, process that is so rewarding. And that was what we had. We had this rapport where we were just in it together. You know, he was doing this incredible writing, and I was able to help him shape it. And that that's, that's the ideal of what you want. A lot of times what you're doing, though, is the story's just not good. The writer's not reacting well to your edits and you kind of have to take it over and that's no fun right because they still get it's by that writer it's by that person and you're having to do kind of a lot of rewriting and you know you're only going to get it to like a you know you're going to take a c level thing to like a a b or b plus maybe right what you want is to get like that b plus and be able to get it to you know okay we can get this to an a and just really how long was the process in in making that story well, that was pretty fire. quick because we wanted we wanted the story to we knew a yep. lot of people were going to be on the story, but that was about I'd say three weeks. 
Yeah. Sometimes though, that can be a six month process. Wow. Are the, do the stories that are tragedies tend to be the, the biggest, most iconic? Yes. You know, like I think about the two, the crack hour, two crack hour pieces from the nineties, the, um, into thin air and, um, Yarnell and into the wild and then the Yarnell fire. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to, to have, you know, dark humor around it because sometimes we'll say in a story idea meeting, well, if somebody could have died, maybe this would have been a good story. Oh God. But it's true. Uh, that, that, that is what, uh, I mean, there are the survival stories where, you know, Aaron Ralston cutting off his arm. Yeah. Um, there's just something there's something about the the genre of survival and the near misses and also the tragedies themselves that people respond to the most without question and are, have you have you seen i mean any stories of like i don't know what to call them but just like sort of unexpected six i don't know it's like a, a I don't know how to how to characterize it, but like the underdog actually winning or something like, like that. Like a story that I didn't think would do well. No, no, or, no. I or, mean, actually, so rather this, so there's the tragedy stories, there's the survival stories. I mean, both have like this kind of gut wrenching sort of what's going to happen versus something extremely positive, maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's true. The, the the cynical idea about the media that like bad news sells yeah. is true. I mean, there are some feel good stories that do well. Well, did Lan- I mean Lance was a very popular popular uh that is a cover that's a great example he At was least in the early days that was a great feel good right and then i mean then his downfall mm-hmm. was that bigger than the than the bigger than the nothing, biggest of the nothing triumphs? touched um so we kind of have a, a few pillars at outside one of them is everest we can write about everest for it's, the next 20 years right. people are fascinated and understandably so because it just has all the human elements yep. on stage and there's always the biggest a new mountain in the world there's always something yep. new, some new controversy some something happening lance was the other one i mean he I, we could have put him on the cover and people were always like why are you putting him on the cover again well why do you think we're putting him on the cover again <laughs> everybody wants to read about him. everybody right. wanted to read about him year after year and i came on board right after he retired so i, I kind oh, of lost wow. the, the lance cash cow <laughs> but um yeah his story i think because it was at that time such a feel-good story and yeah. he was in the the news and he was just an American doing well in a, in a European sports and it just had all the elements right why do you think the why do you think it's the tragedies and the survival stories the near misses that really appeal to people like I can sort of imagine for myself I think well like I picture myself in that situation and I'm like would I have been the survivor would I have been the hero what, what do you suspect? You just answered your own question. You think that's I, mean, it? I mean, I think everybody, what are we all ultimately fascinated with is our own mortality. And to read stories about people who, would I have been willing to cut off my own arm oh, in that right, canyon? Right. Or do, do I want to climb Everest? Uh, you know, if these are the costs, like right. what? Do I have the guts? Is, do I really have the, is, there, is that really necessary? Is it? Um, have you heard of the Marathon Monks by any chance? Do you know about these guys? I don't think so, no. Really? Sandy Marath- watched this documentary I, like five o'clock this morning. I, I couldn't sleep. I, for some reason, I'm, 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 I've been getting up very early. I was up at 4.30 this morning. And uh, I read and uh, I subscribed to Kevin Rose's, um, he's, he's just a guy, I subscribed to his newsletter. And he put a link to this, this YouTube documentary on the marathon monks of, I can't remember the name of the mountain that they climb, but it's a seven year quest to become a, a, a living Buddha. 
mm-hmm. and they believe that the quest to do that is done through the the physical embodiment of Buddha and the kind of the breakdown and the you have to toil through this thing. Well, the the, the and it's been going on for twelve hundred years. Twelve hundred years. Where is it? Is this in Japan? It's in Japan. Yeah, it's in Japan. Okay, it's a it's a quest. It's a thousand marathons over the course of seven years. Okay. And it's not just 26.2 miles. It, it starts there. So year one, you do 126 point, and it's not 26.2. It's probably like 40 kilometers or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you do 100 of these in, in 100 days. You don't, you don't get to scatter them through the year. It's 100 marathons in 100 days. I think year two is 100, mar- 100 marathons in 100 days. Same trail. Same, it's up and down, stairs. You, they're really walking more than they are running. Okay. It's like four miles an hour-ish. And um, the by the time they get to like year four, they, they've upped the, I think year four they have to do 200 sequential days. 100 in one set and then 100 in another set. And then they get to like year five and, it, and the, the, they keep up in the ante. Mm-hmm. It goes from like a 40K to like a 60K every day, 35 miles and by year seven, well, in year six, not only do they have to have done the marathons, but they have to endure a nine-day, no sleep, no water, no food, fast, which for most people is not possible. You, yeah. you die. You literally, yeah. literally die. And that's part of the quest the, the is you're up is against death. Yeah. To get death, you as close mortality. to death as you can okay. actually. It's sort of like the Buddha and the asceticism that turned him to dust yeah. almost. And then the seventh year, it's... A hundred days, you know, sequential days, and then a break, and then another hundred sequential days, and it's fifty-two miles each day. And it, 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 I mean, and they wear, eight, and then the eight-day, and then there's an eight-day uh, meditation after that. That is an eight-day sitting in front of this fire where they're they're you're dehydrating and you're 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 moving towards being dust. Like yes. literally, you're in this fire, and wow, it is. Um, <laughs> Think about this. He, they wear traditional garb. Mm-hmm. The, the the robes he wears every day that he does this for a thousand days is the same robes that you would wear if they were going to bury you. They're white, all white robes, and and he's doing all these treks in these white robes. He wears these white sandals that have been around for hundreds of years. On a wet day, they'll go. He'll go through like six pairs of these these rice paper sandals. Well, and they're also facing death in, in more ways than one. I mean, it's not just you could die. It's the, yeah, if, right. If yeah. they if they don't make it, if they quit, they're, they're, the expectation is that they will disem, disem, uh, okay. dis- yeah. commit ritual suicide. Yeah, yeah. yeah they'll, they'll hang. They, it's by hanging or by what is it called? Disembowelment. Yeah. Disembowelment. Because they'll lose face by not making it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so, <laughs> I mean, I, I was it's telling death, Michael, it's death one way or another, either like symbolic death yeah. or actual death. I was telling Michael, I haven't ever made it on my own ten days just doing ten minutes of meditation. Yeah. I can't imagine getting up even for the first the first year, the first hundred days. I go, okay, okay, I'm waking up to do my 26.2 miles today, up yeah. and down the mountains, uh, climbing should, the you stairs. Should, you should do a story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely like into it. I, I mean, I yeah, hey, I could be your writer. I'm pitching you this idea. Andy would also we'll, be we'll your take photographer. Take a look at some clips. <laughs> 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 got no clips. Yeah. What? Got, I've been published got, on the yeah, whole yeah, challenge yeah, blog. Say, you yeah, got you got a book. You got an editor and everything. Right, exactly. Oh God! It's the last thing I need. But yeah, I mean, there's a mountain, there's a mountain involved, and you know, endurance for sure. It's unbelievable. I, I'm I'm shocked you don't know about it. It's it's uh, 
I figured it was well, kind no, of. Thanks for outing me on a public forum. <laughs> there's a you thing on top of my shit. There's now, I, I just guarantee that you'll never share this podcast with anybody else. <laughs> it's about an hour long YouTube documentary that okay. you can watch on it. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I just think about. But I think that's it. I mean, it's like that that. They put yourself in those shoes. It's, it's yeah, very right. different, and it's, it's certainly not at all to that extreme level. But uh, you know, this rise of ultra endurance sports is exactly the same thing. I mean, and you, you did it with eco challenges. Yeah. I'm sure you experienced that moment in that race. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. Why did I sign up for this? Well, I the re- moment you cross the finish line, you're like, all right, where do I sign up for the next yes, one? Yes, yes. I had, I had that experience. In 1995, I did um, what was then called, I think, the California AIDS ride. And it was a bike ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles. I wasn't a cyclist. Mm. I, I, had a, I had a dirt bike that I rode around. I don't around. think I ever even knew you did this. I rode around L.A. Wow. for, like, commuting. And I was, I was in a movie theater one day, and I was thumbing through, like, L.A. Weekly, which was something I did before. I was by myself before the movie started. And there was this application for the California AIDS ride. And I was like, I bet I could do that. <laughs> and so I signed up for it. <laughs> and uh, it was six months away. And I think, like, for some reason, like, I kind of put my bike in the closet and, and stopped using it. And then did about, you do it on a, was it a beach cruiser? Did you have a No, I didn't do, There was a guy who did it on a beach cruiser while I was doing it. it sounds I had, like Mike Piccitelli. Might I had, have, yeah, I had just a Trek, a Trek knobby-tired mountain bike. Uh-huh. I didn't know the difference at that time between any, any of the characteristics of bikes. I'm like, a bike's a bike. And uh, about a month before it, I was like, oh, my God. I have to – so I, like, tried. Like, I didn't even know what training was. And so it, – but it really was a question of could, could I do this? And – and I remember I went up, and um, people would see my bike, and they're like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> and uh, you know that that sort of that sort of to me became like a point of pride. Did sure. you have Did yeah. you have bike shorts? Did you have like I had padded, a pair of bike shorts. shorts? Yeah, and I remember the first day. Because like, I can imagine your taint just. Oh would man! Have been... Oh man! So like the first the first day was just was miserable. We we're leaving oh. San Francisco over these mountains, and I was like, "What am I doing?" By lunch, I wanted to quit. I was like, "I don't know what I've gotten myself into." <laughs> the next morning, I woke up and I could barely walk, and. Uh, and I, I remembered I had met this guy. Who is it, was, it's, it's what, 70 or 80 miles a day? Is it about it, right? Yeah. Just more, varies. More or less. Some days it's 90. One day it's 45. Right. Um, and you just go to, you know, you camp out and they carry your gear between between yep. things. And I'd met this guy, this photographer, I think in the airport in L.A. who happened to be a friend of my dad's. And he he had um, – and he told me he had had this, you know, he had this hotel room because he was photojournaling. And I ran into him at lunch that first day and I was like – Please take take me with you. I was like, just put me in the back of your van and just take me back to your in hotel. The sag wagon. And he just looked at me and oh. said, "You don't want me to do that." And he's like, "I'm not gonna do it." And so he didn't. And I made it. And I remember there were days where I would just, I ended up like being, I, I you know, I, I got acclimated to it. And I would pass guys on their road bikes, and I'd be like, "Yeah." <laughs> um, and, it was, and as soon as it was over, I was like, "Let's do another." Um, but of course, you know, by like six months later, I was like, "I am never touching that again." Yeah. Ten foot pole. I just remembered. I hadn't thought of this in years, but one of my first long distance and long distance in quotes was a fi- the 50 mile ride from Encinitas, en- Ensenada to Rosarito. Yeah. It was a big, huge event every year, every spring that you'd go down to Mexico and you would do this 50. I'd never ridden 50 miles. I, I had a rock hopper, I think was my first mountain bike. And, uh, very similar experience. Like I didn't really train, didn't know mm-hmm. what it meant to train on a bike. Mm-hmm. I was a Marine, so I figured I was tough enough. And I, and I, I did the same thing with my first, I did a 50 mile ultra marathon of the San Juan Hills. And you know, one of our teammates in the Eco challenge was a ultra endurance athlete. And she's like, let's do this as a team. It'd be good warm up for the Eco challenge. I'm like, okay. And I longest run I think I'd ever done is about a 10 K up until that point. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, made it really well for like 25 miles. And the, you know, well, is this the one you ended up? 
I didn't make it. Right. I, made, you had, you had I, I was like 48 in miles. sag wagon at 48 miles and two yeah, miles before the end. <laughs> I couldn't. I just it was just dumb. I mean, I probably could have made it. You but could, but it's not they, how you they were to finish. Pull, right, and yeah. they were pulling me off the course, and I was injured. And You're I was crawling. Yeah, I, I would have made it, but well, you know, had, had death been. At my doorstep, like yeah. hanging or make it, I would have made it. Of course, I, you know. <laughs> it sounds like you kind of wussed out. I know. I, yeah. I, well, well, so this is funny. You wanna, so, yeah, let's talk about the wuss out of the, when I was of when I was forty nine. I was like, well, what do I want to do for my fiftieth? And I thought, well, the only thing I've ever really quit mm-hmm. has been that fifty miler. I'll sign up for another fifty. I'll do a fifty miler. And there was this. The North Face has a, a yep. series of fifty ultras. And there was one up in uh, the, the Presidio in I've San done Francisco. That one. Yeah. Oh, really? Yep. Got a bunch of friends to sign got, up. I got a bunch of people at the gym. I got they got very excited. I, I went into so six a.m. class. I still teach at CrossFit LA, and um, I got, I was like, guys, it's a great goal. I'm I'm 49, and I got a year to train because I turned I turned 50 in December, and this was December yep. of when I was 49. So I had a full year. I got time to do this this time. And so there were four people who were ultra endurance people. They had done the Catalina 50 and some of these other races. And so they were like, yeah, this is awesome. We're in. And so no, no, nothing more was really said. Tim, uh, Tim Martin had sent me his registration for the race. That it, Oh, I did it. Have you signed up yet? And did Daw, Doss did it and Nikki did it? Yeah, they all, they all signed up. And, um, and as I <laughs> kept considering what, the, what it meant – to go do this. I live in Santa Monica. I, you know, I've got an, I've got a, at that point, an eight year old son. I coach soccer. I coach baseball. I kept thinking, okay, if I want to do this well, I, I need to run and I need to run regularly and I need to run a lot. I need to put hours on the trail. And the question kept coming back for me. Do I want to spend, you know, I don't know how many hours I didn't add it all up, but do I want to spend that amount of time away from my family doing like n- missing that time? Yeah. And, the answer kept coming back every time I asked myself was no, I don't want to do that. Not that I wanted to not run 50 miles because there's part of me that I still would like to go out and <laughs> run 50 sure. miles. But and maybe when, you know, my son is off to college and, you know, I've, my time is more of my own. Maybe I'll, I'll do that again. Do you know? 60 for your 60th. Maybe, yeah, maybe. That's <laughs> interesting. That's an interesting <laughs> idea. I'll have to tack 10 on to the end of the North Face. That's right. Um, but yeah, so yeah. Well, ultra is not a sport for parents. <laughs> no, well, I, I, I like. I, I was listening to a, a, a podcast. I can't remember the name of the guy, uh, but he's a bow hunter. And he's also an endurance racer, and he's talking about doing the Leadville 100. And then, oh, he, and and in the in the podcast, he was talking about this upcoming race he was doing that was like 250 miles or something like that. And like every part of me knows better. Like every part of me is like, no way. I, and, then, and then there's this little whispering voice was like. <laughs> Yeah, Can but I do you do think that? maybe yeah. like it'd be really cool if you did it, don't you think? It's right. there's that part that like yearns to go beyond like a- any concept you have of what you could possibly do, um, and uh, and you know I guess we all have to find. But there's so there's that. some that are so far beyond that they just seem ludicrous. Yeah. You know, kind of like yesterday when you were negotiating kind of for that pot. You know that when we're with, with the Indian with the with the guy in uh, downtown. Not pot <laughs> no not pot Potter, not pottery 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 <laughs> <laughs> not marijuana yeah. uh piece of pottery we were at the we were at the, uh, at the plaza, plaza. Yeah. and and you know michael had seen a, a, a 
piece of pottery, and I, said, pottery I, I went over, and I was talking to the guy about it, and he was telling me the story. This was his wife's pottery. This was his pottery. He told me yeah, about learning from his grandmother, and he would fire him. gave me the whole story, and I was like, I'm really interested, you know? And I had some idea, because some of the things, some prices were labeled. Like, he had these small magnets that were like eight bucks. I was like, oh, you know, maybe I could, I could get one of these for 30 or 40 bucks. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so he's telling me the whole story. I'm like, great. Can you give me some of the prices here for this? And he's like, well, this pot is $300. And this one – and I was like, what? I was like, we're <laughs> so far from a price I'd be willing to pay. I can't even negotiate yeah. with you. <laughs> like, I'd be like, can I give you a 60? Yeah. You know, it just would – it wouldn't just, work. Uh, yeah. yeah but so it's that, so far like, – like the Tour de France is so far beyond anything that I would ever picture. I, I, I can't really relate to that. Mm -hmm. I can relate to a 100-mile bike ride. Mm -hmm. I can relate to maybe even a 200-mile bike ride. But that is, you know, anyway, so just uh, um, interesting. I th but I think you have to find, you know, we all want to find a way to do it. Like for me, it's definitely not running. But, you know, we have, a, we have a, an old friend, and Andy did a podcast with him, and he did, and he did some pretty interesting stuff. Who is, it? Who is this? Traver. Oh, yeah. And oh, he, yeah. Did, he did a 28-day um, silent, in-the-dark meditation retreat. So, mm -hmm. I mean, pitch black. Never acclimate to the to, to the dark. It just can't see your hand in front of your face for 28 days. You have a mat to sleep on, a meditation cushion. They bring you food, um, you know. And and then he also did this this um, this course in Utah. Is it called Boss? I think they do the out, these, out, yeah. these outdoor yeah. field yeah. courses. And he did one of those for 28 days. And there's a good portion of that where you're soloing on your own, and you know, and you're finding your own food. And if you don't find food, you're not eating. And so, and and those to me, like I'm like those are more inside of like my conception of who I am, yeah. You know, and what what where I'd like to be able to maybe stretch myself. That was why Eco Challenge was doable for me. I wasn't an adventurer like. I wanted to leave the world behind and have no security or safety and go conquer the North Pole. I was like, I got a radio. If 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 shit really hits the fan, which it has, and sometimes the radio doesn't work. I found out, but I always felt like I, there was a, there was a level of safety that I was willing to undertake. Yeah, a level of risk that I was willing to undertake, and that's you know, yeah. Um, I was an adventure racing Yahoo. But yeah, I think <laughs> I think maybe like that that kind of taps into why people like these stories. It's like yeah, what, what are like the limits? These stories, but also why they like. I mean, this this is kind of the phenomenon in the world we cover right now, and, and CrossFit's a part of it too. It's like yeah. just this desire to push ourselves into that pain cave yeah and for a lot of people you know they question that like why, why would you want well you do, do it yourself right what are what are some of the events you do yeah i mean i i'm, I'm certainly not in any any stretch of the imagination close to any elite level of it but i have always found something totally addictive about that um process whether it's an ultra marathon which i've done um really love doing ski mountaineering races which is kind of these, these long slogs up and over mountains on skis. Um, but there's something about... L long meaning a couple hundred miles? Well, the, the last one I did was the Power of Four in Aspen, and it's um, you get, there's four major ski areas in Aspen, and you go up and over them all. I think it's about 30 miles total, but 13,000 feet of climbing, something like Whoa. that. All on your skis. All on your skis. And um, how, how long does that take? Um... That took us, God, I want to say eight hours, something like that, eight or nine hours. You have, you have a pack, you got water. Yeah, you, you, you have, have to, to be do it with a partner, which is why I say we. Okay. Um, you got to be self-sustaining? Yeah, like, there's a couple of aid stations, but for okay. the most part, you are. Um, nowadays, it's a huge sport in Europe. It's just kind of... Ski mountaineering. Ski mountaineering. Like endurance race. Yeah. Ski huh. endurance, endurance mountaineering. And um, 
you you're wearing lycra suits which is a little hard to get over, get used to it it's kind of like when you first weightlift and you wear a wear a yeah. singlet first time we came to a race <laughs> um the the sponsor who um gave us a media pass to come try it you know gave us these lost sportiva yellow and black yeah. lycra and i said to my partner i was like i don't know and he's like no trust me everybody's gonna be wearing this I'm like ah, come on, you get to feel know. like spider-man yeah well no i got there <laughs> and everybody's in full-on lycra so but anyway there's something about like that moment in the race where you're like ah, i just don't feel like i'm gonna finish this i'm just suffering i'm suffering and then you cross the finish line and you literally want to sign up for the next one. You yeah. have no idea why. And I think women have it with, with childbirth, you know. They put mm. themselves through the you're in ultimate trouble. test. <laughs> <laughs> He's about to have a kid in yeah. June. Yeah, Look, when's, when's this podcast coming out? Oh, After- God, you haven't announced that yet. Have no, you? I haven't. You will have by then. Yeah, because we'll, it'll, it'll be it'll, in a couple, be in like in a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. 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 But so, you know, I, always, I say, and I, I like walking on eggshells, I mean, I'm not equating this with childbirth, but right. this is like the closest I can get to that, to, to appreciating that feeling. Like the baby's in your arms and you've already forgotten everything that you've just gone through. Right, right. right. And I think that, and that maybe that's exactly sort of what you're talking about. Because when you, what you almost go through, it's almost like this, when you finally, it's like coming out the other side. Yeah. You know, it's, you go through that, 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 that rebirth. Yeah. Like you, it's like you burned in the flames and you were reborn. And there, I'm sure there's some sort of physiological chemical rush to it that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I would do this again. Well, and there's also a cliche to it, but I know that it, it applies directly to my life. Like, I can come back to work after that. I've got that kind of surge of energy and rush, but it's also this feeling like, I just went through that, and this terrible thing's happened at work, and no big deal. We'll get through this. Like I, you just learn so much more about yeah. what you can tolerate. I think that's a big thing. Like, when, uh, like I don't want to go out and get my arm pinned in a, under a rock and sit out there for a week wondering if I'm going to live or die. However, it's like I, I. It would be great to have the knowledge that I could do that. That I yeah. that I survived yeah. that. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's like they did a really great job portraying it in the film mm-hmm. yeah. when he was when he was actually severing his arm and going through cutting the nerves. And it's like, oh my god! I, you look at it, you go, I probably at that point I would probably just die. Yeah. So you know, you, there's this there's this envy for the people who have go, who have survived yeah. something like that, and you're like, God, I, I wish I had that about myself. And so you fantasize about those things when you when you encounter them. One of my favorite all time assignments was about this long, uh, two two inches of copy, and um, it was for our, I think it was our like 30th anniversary issue, and we had Aaron Ralston, the guy who cut mm-hmm. off his arm. Yeah. So we used to give away these pocket knives, these cheap Chinese pocket knives if you got a subscription to outside. So we had him review our, the quality <laughs> of our pocket knife. You had Aaron review it? Yeah, the guy oh, who uh, cut right. off his own arm. So he took it. It was probably pieces. better than what he ended up with. Yeah, I think so. Because by the time he was finished with that knife, he'd been chipping away at rock for a week. Yeah, and right. It was just, no, that knife it was, was like not a, in good shape. It was like the back of a butter knife. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Just good God. And then yeah. breaking your own arm. To get through the bone. Do you find any of that same, uh, that similar kind of breakthrough in, in issues? That Like, does does the magazine world relate at all to what we're kind of talking about? Like, you go through hell and you're in the middle of getting this issue done and then you get the issue done and you're like, ah, oh, yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, some issues, I would say more on like a story level. Oh, okay. Where like, it's like I said before, it's a, I said like a puzzle, but it's like a Rubik's Cube sometimes and you're just constantly tw- fiddling around with the the structure of a story and then you unlock it and you figure it out is there a feeling that you have when you know you've solved it yeah 
it's not an immediate because by then you've stared at it so long. Right. It's like it's, it's it's actually when you put it out into the world finally and you think you're like, ah, I think we we really got it with this story. And then when you when you see how it resonates and the, the kind of the reception and the letters you get and, and that kind of thing. I was actually going to ask you about that because I oftentimes, you know, when I read a magazine and I'll see in the next issue, people will have written in letters about one of the articles. And it, God, it's like, it never occurred to me to write a letter yeah. to respond to a, to a magazine. Do you guys get a, you guys must get a lot, a lot of responses to the stuff that you publish. We do. We get a lot of it. Probably 75, maybe 80 percent of it is negative. Oh, which, really? Which hmm. makes sense. Like what you say, like. Most people don't think like, oh, I read this and I'm I'm gonna write to the to the letter a letter. Like, usually that's triggered by like, God, I hated that. Like I need most to tell somebody I like hated Yelp that. reviews. But you're not gonna read something. <laughs> God, I love that, and I'm gonna share my love for right? that with, with the editors of the magazine. And what what typically do people respond to negatively? Is like, I could have done better. You guys are wrong. Is it, is it the writing? Is it the 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 the, the subject matter? Is oh, it, the... it could be everything. But there's some things that I know. Every time we write about Lance, yeah, I can guarantee you we're gonna get. A thousand letters. Like, why Mostly, are you paying attention to this guy right, anymore? Right. Like, we hate this guy. He's a cheater. Right. Um, there was a time when we would we would question whether he was a cheater when yep. he was still you know lionized, and we get the opposite letters. Like, how dare you? He's an American hero. He's saving people from <laughs> cancer. <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, I mean, anything anything that touches on political, which is almost anything these days, is going to elicit reaction. But as I said earlier on, like. Actually, I think you said it like we want our stories to provoke a reaction. So a lot of times that's a negative reaction and we'll, we'll get a letter about it. It's hard to categorize exactly. I, I can usually predict what though, kind of negative what reaction, kind of, what kind of stories sure. yeah, we'll get. And so, OK, so um, I just want to shift gears a little bit. Yeah. So um, your personal life, how do you manage your you, you have two kids you've got an, an another one on the way mm -hmm. how do you what's your work-life balance are you working 100 hour weeks are you working 30 no, 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 no. hour weeks are you are you walking the talk that you might that what i might picture you pitching as a balanced life in outside magazine you know like what what how does it work for you yeah i think i i think it's a pretty bad i think it would would fit the picture pretty well um i mean one of the huge advantages is that i'm in santa fe my right. uh, house is five minutes from the office. I always joke, like, sometimes, you know, you flick open your phone and it'll say your commute time. And one, right. one time it said it's four, approximately four minutes to 400 <laughs> Market Street. So, right. but essentially, I, so I've, I've eliminated what, what is a huge part of most people's day, which is, you know, it could be a half hour, it could be an hour commute, it could be yep. on the subway. Um, so I, I have that time. So my mornings, I can get into the office at eight o'clock after I dropped the kids off at school and I've already had an hour long run um, and then I can put work time in. So just where I live really enables me to have a lot of balance. And also just with anything that you've done for a long time, I probably, I don't think I was ever working hundred hour weeks, but certainly when I first became the editor, it was way up over my ski tips and kind of trying to figure out what I was doing and trying to make sure that I was tricking everybody here to believe that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, right. And then, you know, you just do something for a while and you're, everything becomes easier and, and you can do something in a lot less time. So I would say I work, you know, a 40-hour week and, um, and that's a very manageable. I also work with incredible people. So, But everybody here, I think, that comes here if, if there's any reluctance about living in santa fe because they've come from new york it's that 
quality of work-life balance that this place enables you. Um, the fact that like on a powder day, we're all skiing before work um, right. and then can put in a full day's work and, and fit all that in. It's just an unbelievable opportunity. Tell me a story, if, one, if you can generate one, about some, a, a time as editor of Outside Magazine that, that you've really struggled that has been a real, like a, a, a hurdle or a something you may have felt it was insurmountable or ha- has there been one? And, and yeah, it's hard to say. Um, this magazine has always had the good fortune of like that we have in our industry, what are essentially our Emmys or our Oscars called the national magazine awards now called mm-hmm. the Ellie's and this magazine has always had a reputation of winning a lot of those. And in the nineties, that kind of that time of when, um, into thin air came out, the magazine was the only magazine in history to win three national magazines for general excellence, which is like the best picture Oscar for three years in a row. So that's always sort of been the standard of the magazine. And for the first, I think four or four or five years I was here, we didn't get any nominations. And every year that would be sort of like the worst day of my year. Like get the news that we didn't get any nominations, have to share that with the staff, feel like the past 12 months of work that you thought was really solid was, was great. And then trying to figure out like, am I fooling myself? Are we all right. fooling ourselves? We, we thought we did excellent work last, last year. So, um, I think the first time we broke through and we won the National Magazine Award for General Excellence was this like lesson of, I didn't feel actually like the work was any markedly different than it had been previous year. Mm-hmm. And to remember that, like, yeah, I'm really excited that we won, but I want to also believe that what we were doing before and what we'll do after, regardless of what the reception is, it's figuring out when you can, when you can really believe that, that you're, the work you've done is worthy of it versus... So you can't look back at those years where you weren't nominated and say, I see, I see. Maybe the first couple of years I was here, I could see that that there was some improvement going on. But in terms of like on a story level or feature level, no, it's harder for me to see that. But um, I think somebody in the industry, uh, I think it was David Granger, the old editor of Esquire magazine. He said to me, National Magazine Awards, they mean everything when you get one and nothing when you don't. And that was like the best advice that that I could get. So just to remember, like, kind of let you breathe a little bit, like, yeah. oh, okay. So when I got one, it was like, okay, this I feel like now we're on top of the world. But um, to remember that if you if you don't, it, it doesn't really have to mean anything. Yeah, and that everybody else in the industry besides the one who won also didn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, that that was I remember the, the real struggle is like needing that. Okay, I'd gotten as far as I could as an editor. I felt comfortable in the role because I was pretty young when I first took this role, mm-hmm. and I'd been an intern here before. So, that, like, did you go from intern to editor? No, I'd, I'd gone to a couple other magazines before that. Oh, okay. So you didn't work your way up through the ranks no, outside, and probably never could have because of that. Because it's it's hard to jump from that when the perception is always, oh, he he was an editor here. I kind of had to make my reputation elsewhere. Gotcha. Yeah. But um, but to feel like I needed that like validation from the, the peers in your industry who are judging those awards to say, okay, yeah, you are doing a good job. And then once, once you get that, that was sort of my feeling of breakthrough, a feeling of comfort in the, in the role, I guess. Right. Right. 
What, um, so as a writer, have you, you, I'm sure you've read Stephen Pressfield's stuff, the war of art. You yeah. Know? A little bit. Yeah. You know, he, he has this thing about resistance mm-hmm. and you know, the most important thing as a writer is you just start to write, just mm-hmm. sit down to write. Do you have that kind of a rigor around, I know it's work for you. Um, how, how does that show up for you given that you do it for a living? Yeah, I think for me, the, the rigor is, um, you know, 10 years in, it's essentially the same job in a lot of ways as when I first started here. So how do I make it still interesting and challenging in, in the same ways that it was when it was like every t- time I came in the door, I was like, okay, what's going to face me today? Right. Um, and the sav- savior for me has been the fact that the media industry has completely been disrupted in those 10 years and is constantly evolving like i'm hosting a podcast now that wasn't something that existed 10 years ago um we're publishing 100 stories a week on on the website that didn't exist before so that evolution um the times that i find the job the most challenging is like when there feels like there's this stasis like there isn't something changing or evolving and it's it's trying to tap into what what that is and as soon as, as soon as that new thing um reveals itself i kind of find myself really re-engage <laughs> in a way that I, I hadn't been able to before how much writing do you do you assign yourself stories yeah i don't do a lot of it um and that probably has to do with the life uh work-life balance right. i would love to go and report more stories the, the reality is it's it's hard i've got two young kids and another right. on the way um so I, I will occasionally write pieces. Um, the creative outlet for me is, has been this podcast um, mm. to be able to talk to a lot of the people that I've always wanted to talk to in the world. Um, we do a lot of editing on those and some narration, which is kind of scratches the same itch. Um, and you've got more than one podcast. Yeah, we've got multiple co- podcasts in the feed, and it's this whole new business model that we're trying to figure out. And, and that's who's been the who's been the most fun, intriguing, or 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 like wide-eyed, nervous guests you've had that you've gotten to speak. Oh, do you get nervous for guests? I I used to. I, I yeah, a little bit. But um, if I can do them in person, I don't get nervous. Hmm. I get nervous on the phone. If that, if that seems yeah. strange, but no, it's I, like, I think do you do Skype? Do you do Skype or do, do you? Do do? I don't do Skype. I, oh. I, it's it's because you you can't get that that body yeah. language that rapport. But right. As soon as I'm in person. But uh, probably my favorite is um, I really like talking to Michael Gervais. He's a sports psychologist. Um, He works with not Ricky Gervais. No, (laughs) 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 he uh, he works with like everyone from the Seattle Seahawks to all the Red Bull athletes. Uh And he just deals with the mental side of performance. And it's kind of this long overlooked piece you what know? mental they just three two one go yeah exactly, i mean come on they just right? hucked themselves off a cliff what exactly. what's the big deal <laughs> well it's true i mean i think if almost any sport you get into or profession like that's the we we focus so much on our diet and what we're eating and the, the way we're exercising and preparing but think the least until very recently about how we're pre- it's the other piece that you can train yeah right 
And um, I think that starts starting to sort of cross the boundary in everything. Yeah. You yeah. know, with, with what we do, you know, there in the whole life challenge, it's like there's your nutrition, there's your exercise, there's your sleep, these these actual physical characteristics of your of your life and your practices, and then there's this other part that we that we have as part of the challenge, which is training that that inner experience. It's kind of like a, it's a meta sort of experience of those things. It's like what is your mindset like? What is your mind like while you're eating? Yes. And and, and your relationship to that and your relationship to exercise because. When you shift those things, I mean, it's 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 really incredible the quality, how the quality of those things changes, how the intensity can change, how the acceptance of the way things are can change. It's pretty extraordinary. Absolutely, yeah. And I think um, so. It's cool to see those things being adopted now, and and especially like, you know, what you would think would be these highly, just macho sport of NFL football. These players that he worked with, and they're working on their gratitude journals. You know, wow, <laughs> which is great. Wow, yeah, sounds like somebody I'd like to talk to. Yeah, you should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, he sounds like a great person for the for. for I'll the just podcast. have you introduce me to all the guests you have. <laughs> That's how the podcast world works. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> totally. Chris, thank you so much. This yeah. has been a really great conversation. And Thanks I, so I much really for appreciate your, me on. Appreciate yeah. your time. Yeah, this is, to you guys. I've learned a ton. <laughs> never, I mean, I've never really had... Thanks for being here. I could, we could do this more often. It's kind of fun to have a third... You um, guys should hang out more. <laughs> maybe we should. Maybe we should. We actually kind of enjoy it. Go figure. <laughs> Um, yeah, look forward to the next time. We'll have to do it again sometime. For sure. All right. The Whole Life Podcast is produced by our podcast team, Winslow Jenkins, Becca Borowski, and Ernie Hurtado. You can find all of our episodes, links, and complete show notes at wholelifechallenge.com forward slash podcast. The way that I've found is the best way to listen to podcasts is to subscribe so that episodes automatically get delivered right to your mobile device. You can do that in any podcast app on your phone. And hey, if you like the podcast, please do me a favor. Go to iTunes and give it a five-star rating and recommend it to your friends. I'm Andy Petronic, and thanks so much for listening. Listening.